1: I'm April Vokey and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Ryan Callahan is more than just a mustache. I first met Ryan when he was working for First Light as the Director of Conservation, and I was immediately drawn to his authenticity. As a longtime hunter, angler, and competent outdoorsman, he has seen just about everything. In this episode of Anchored, Ryan and I discuss a little bit of his family history, the basics of the public land campaign, and chronic wasting disease in deer.
2: I was born and raised in uh, well Billings, Montana. So I'm Montana native. Did most of my growing up in Missoula. In fact, my grandpa's grandpa or great grandpa uh, homesteaded here in the Gallatin Valley.
1: Cool. When, yep. when so when would that have been? It would have been a hundred.
2: Yeah, over. I mean, over a hundred years ago now. Do you guys um, really
1: still have that property in your family?
2: No. Oh, can I imagine be so cool. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh but my grandpa talks about thinking he was so cool because they used a two horse team and a buckboard to go into town once a week to get mail. And he got to drive the team. And uh he thought he was quote unquote a real teamster. <laughs> yeah. God. Um but uh he said in reality that Particular team of horses could have gone into town, got the mail. And come back on their own.
1: Yeah. So, sounds yeah. about right. Yeah. Mm. You know, when I look at you, you, you look to me like what I would expect somebody from Montana to look like. I know that sounds so horribly stereotypical, but you've got the mustache and you've got the bit of a drawl and you got the sort of face where I can't tell if you're dipping or not at the time oh, that we're talking. Are you <laughs> dipping right now? I can't nope. tell, you know, like it's nope. just, you just got this Montana look about you. So what was it like growing up here where you were obviously, Hunting and fishing, I would imagine.
2: Well, yeah, you know, I got into you know fishing way that was way more accessible to me, right? Because you're you're just not dealing with a firearm. So I got uh, we lived right off of Rattlesnake Creek, which is uh, flows into the Clark Fork right in downtown Missoula, and got to yeah fish that almost every single day. I'd walk home, make a big detour walking home from school, and go fish the creek every day and there's a wilderness section. It's one I think it's the first wilderness in the US, the rattlesnake wilderness. And uh, got you know, I'd zip up there and or bull trout and cutthroat and really pretty and nobody else really doing it then. And um, so that's kinda not a very good it's odd because I, I'm good at teaching people like Teaching people how to fly fish, teaching people how to hunt—I'm good at stuff like that. But I was a terrible student for things like that.
1: Mm, that's yeah. That's not. That's not that abnormal. I don't. Think. Like I
2: couldn't have the instruction every day. Mm-hmm. I'd just like show up for one class and then go do the rest of the classes on my own, and then return back for one class type of. Scenario.
1: So, did you do college then? On that note,
2: oh, I got uh, a lot of college in. (laughs) Never graduated. You
1: just went to one day of every class.
2: (laughs) I had a real hard time with the structure of of uh, college. Yeah. Yeah. So,
1: what did you do? Did you keep going? Did you finish your degree?
2: No, I was a history and anthropology major.
1: Mm, Interesting. Yeah,
2: and. You know, oddly enough, like I wanted to be a geologist and specifically whatever job for the USGS allowed you to go check all the stream flow stations. Mm. Cuz I met a guy fishing the Beaverhead River one day and he's got his USGS plates on the truck and he has his flyer out in his hand and then he like ducks into the stream flow shack. I was like, "Yeah, what uh,
1: what job you
2: got?" And I'm like, "Seems like you just he's like, "Yeah, I do a lot of a lot of fishing."
1: <laughs> he's in uniform.
2: Uh, there was no uniform.
1: Okay, but
2: I was like, "That's that's a pretty sweet gig." But that didn't end up happening.
1: Do you need your degree to do that?
2: I have no idea. So I, I ended up taking many courses over more than uh, a typical amount of years at the University of Montana, and then really, I had uh, an unbelievably good bird dog that drugged me out. I was like, "Man, this dog! It's not like..." Wow. It's never going to get this good again. And I just, like, could not keep my butt in class.
1: Right.
2: Yeah, and that was kind of the beginning of the end.
1: There are really great bird dogs, aren't there? Yes, absolutely. It's interesting dabbling in this whole bird hunting thing. I keep hearing that, that there are really phenomenal bird dogs. So I guess that that would be a situation where you're like, okay, I've got, say, 10 years. with. I mean, what's the average lifespan of a lot of these bird dogs?
2: Well, uh, I always had labs, and oh, okay, so yeah. they tend to be a little bit bigger. And um, they're really not, they shouldn't, in my opinion, be used as like a wholly versatile bird dog because the way that they're built, um, you can break you can break a dog down pretty fast if you're not, uh, if you're encouraging them to do things out of their scope. Yeah. So, you know, Lab is really a swimmer mm-hmm. and that's what they're built for. And they're great for some other things too, but they're not a super high-endurance animal, they're more of a short sprinter, and so you take a 100-pound lab and try to make them an endurance animal, they'll do it for you because they want to be with you, but you're, you're, it definitely comes at a long-term cost, right? Yeah. Like those joints are going to break down. and
1: yeah, 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 it happens. So you'd be looking at... You know,
2: so I think for labs, you know, that five to eight years old is a pretty okay. amazing time. When they hit those little pro levels and, you know, labs are cuddly, want to be with you affectionate dogs, mm-hmm. but there's nothing I like to see more than reaching down to pet my lab in the duck blind and having her duck out of the way of my hand.
1: So she can see birds?
2: Yeah. Like, <laughs> like I don't grope you at work. Like, don't... Like, I'm here to do my job. (laughs) You do yours. Yeah, exactly. that is
1: really cute. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. One of the main reasons I want you on the show is because I'm absolutely fascinated with the subject of public land. Mm -hmm. And it's something that's been obviously discussed in, in, in so many different shows, but it hasn't been discussed on mine and I really don't know that much about it. And so I was hoping we could... Talk about it.
2: Yeah, love public land.
1: Okay, so just so the public knows, I mean, I first met you when you were with First Light. Yep, and we'd had some conversation, and it was very clear right away to me that you are that you're forward thinking in a conservation sense. What were you doing at First Light to to be involved with conservation?
2: Well, uh, you know, I was the first employee over there. So
1: when was that?
2: Um, that was the winter of two thousand eleven.
1: Okay. All right. So they're a pretty new ish company.
2: Yeah. You know, they're a little over 10 years old now. And the way First Light scaled, you know, they, in my mind, they did it the way you should, where it was just slow growth. And this is, we're not going to get cr- too crazy too fast and, and slow build. So when I first came on, I was all of sales, marketing, and media and one of the things that fell under my purview was the brand voice in every channel, essentially. And when, you know, that 2011, 2012, we, we really saw a resurgence of an old idea that really, the last time it really popped up was under Re- the Reagan administration, and you heard this term, the Sagebrush Rebellion. And it is folks who believe that the federal government shouldn't own land. This idea of, well, we're going to wipe out the federal deficit, the debt our nation's built up by just taking all of the holdings that we spend money on, like this huge system of public lands that we have, and selling it.
1: Do you mind if I back you up? Yeah, go for it. I'm so sorry to hijack this, but it's really interesting because of your great-great-grandpa. Back in his day, how did it work? Were they all settlers from Europe, or had that already happened? Yeah. um, Who's the the land owned by back then?
2: Yeah, so uh, Montana specifically at that point was just a territory, and they purchased it as part of the Louisiana Purchase, the federal government purchased it during the Louisiana Purchase. So France was holding the keys at that point. Yeah, and then they had, one of the ways that they had wanted to expand the tax base of the nation is, you know, settling the wild places. So encouraging people to go populate new regions. Right. Yeah. And
1: and they were given, like, grants or... or yeah, they or were they given the Homestead Free Land. Act. Yeah.
2: yeah. Yep, so you just, you got to go out to an unclaimed plot of land and you got to work it. So, you know, really you're not given anything, right? You got to work it. Mm -hmm. And then if you've worked it every day for X amount of time, then you get your 360 acres.
1: Okay. That's about what I figured.
2: Yeah. That's that's, uh, how some of my relatives got out here. And they had, um, yeah, classic Montana boom and bust life where... They were living good on a small place. They tried to get a bigger place. They went bust during the depression. Um. A bunch of them moved into town. And so, like my grandpa's dad was uh, actually a social worker in Helena, Montana, their their capital.
1: So, with the federal government, then, how much property did they give off to settlers to you know work and pay back?
2: Uh, It's a really good question. I don't. I know initially they gave a lot more than what was ultimately taken because you had, um, you know, your environmental factors came in, right? Lots of folks went out and were like, great, you know, quote-unquote free land. They worked their land, and then all of a sudden you had a couple of really hard winters, and you got a bunch of abandoned homesteads, and then you had areas of the country that really really fended off white folks well like they just were not going to get settled it just wasn't economically feasible and the last kind of holdouts in a lot of those areas you know places like like our wilderness areas are are great like uh the frank church wilderness uh that sabonoso wilderness down in new mexico there are a lot of um subsistence homesteads in those places up until uh, World War One, and then when the Great War kicked off, there were, you know, a surplus of jobs all of a sudden, and plus just an opportunity I think for a lot of folks to change their circumstances. So that's when you saw kind of the last of those homesteaders leave the tough places, and then you have, uh, you know, primarily the U.S. Forest Service and the BLM Bureau of Land Management are your two government bodies that manage essentially unclaimed land.
1: Fast forward to now. How much of the land is is federally owned versus owned by the citizens of Montana?
2: Oh, that's that's a good question. I mean, I want to say, you know, we'd have to google it.
1: How big is Montana in general?
2: How big is Montana in general? You really hit me on my Montana history here. Um uh, Montana's a big state. It is overwhelmingly privately owned. It is a big state, but we have, you know, it's, yeah, it, it's crazy to think about, but it is it is more private ownership than public ownership. But um, we do have some big chunks, the Bob Marshall Wilderness, Glacier National Park.
1: But when you say privately owned, do you mean owned by? Individuals. individuals. Okay. So what does it say there on your phone? It says that the government owns how, how many acres or hectares or whatever it's measured in?
2: Well, the U.S.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: is roughly 2.27 billion acres. Okay. And 640 million acres of that 2.27 billion acres is public land essentially federally managed land.
1: Okay, interesting. That's for all of the United States. Yes. I don't I'm not um, quick enough on a calculator, but I'd be curious to see what percent that is. Quite low. So that's actually lower than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. So when you say things like it's federally protected, you mean things like parks and, and like national Well, there's reserves. national forest. Yeah.
2: Um, well, you know, and this is why, you know, the public land debate can get exhausting really quick, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of nuances. So, and people over the years have come up with all sorts of ways to figure out how to you know, protect or preserve different chunks of ground because, you know, every administration is different. And you have a president who says, I absolutely will not have another wilderness area under my watch. doesn't mean people go, well, we can't, we just can't do anything. Um, Folks go, okay, well, we'll make it a monument. Or will they could make it a national recreation area.
1: Which still doesn't work. That's a Bears Ears?
2: Bears Ears, Grand Staircase, Escalante. Yep. I
1: mean, that was Those a monument. Yep. Yeah, and it, it still ended up having, you know, this new legislation passed that it was going to be having interference. The,
2: the borders board, the were uh, redrawn under the Trump administration. Um, you know, that is uh, being battled out in court. Legally, and, right. And that'll... Happened for a while. But yeah, you know, a wilderness area takes an act of Congress typically. Okay. Um, Whereas a messy. monument yeah, that can be taken care of through the Antiquities Act. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I went and actually lobbied for a monument in Idaho through the creation of a new monument in Idaho. Okay. And I was down with uh, one of the senators for the state of Idaho. And he said, well, do you want a wilderness area or do you want a monument? I was there to lobby for a monument. and I said, well, I want a monument. He said, well, then what the hell are you doing talking to me? You need to go talk to the guy at Pennsylvania Avenue. That's cool. the only person that can make a monument.
1: Why a monument? Why did, I mean, I'm assuming you don't care if it's a monument. You just want it to be protected.
2: When you look at like the scope, we manage our ground. We as in like, we the people, right? The feds manage the ground for we the people under this multiple use mandate. And multiple use is just that. And it can be, you know, extractive use, could be logging operations, mining operations. But if you focus just on the recreation side, you know, you have skiing, rock climbing, bicycling, hiking, hunting, fishing, a lot, right? Mm -hmm. So certain designations have different levels of protections, or restrictions or regulations, however you want to say it.
1: I always see these people walking around with "keep it public." I hunt public land. I fish public land. Stickers, and then I see the hashtags. Right, public land. I am a, a public landowner. Yep. And it just looks like such an, a large. You know, it just looks like this big all-encompassing subject when they're like, "I, I am a landowner." Yeah. But. What is that doing? Because yep. I would imagine that it's it's it are, there are regions in particular that need to be protected or, you know, discussed or brought through lawsuits or whatever. So, do they even? have- Well, you a, could
2: remove the word "protected" and just say "managed."
1: Managed. Are they doing anything when they're like, "I am a hashtag public owner." Wouldn't it be better to be like, listen, this is the area I want managed properly, and this is what I'm going to focus on, this is what I'm going to promote, that I am a public owner of?
2: Well, I, I think, yeah, they are doing something when they're wearing those shirts and they have those bumper stickers. But I think, you know, what everybody should be doing is challenging people also and saying, oh, yeah, you're a public landowner. What do you do for public lands?
1: Right, Well, and that's what and I'm wondering. You should
2: have a good answer, right? Right, and, and so. I'm wondering
1: because I want you to be able to say to me, what do you do for public lands? I want to have an answer, but right yes. now.
2: So, you know, for you, mm. um, when you, uh, I know you, you drop a ton of cash every year on fishing in every location that you fish or hunting every location that you hunt. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you come to Montana, you got to buy a non-resident conservation license, fishing license, hunting license, upland bird stamp. And percentages of all that go to conservation. That is another giant umbrella word, but a percentage of that is going to be earmarked for access. It's going to be earmarked for habitat. It's going to be earmarked for education. So
1: that's all I'm doing is buying licenses? That's
2: all you're doing. And that is like a pittance and a bare minimum. So, but
1: what else? I mean, I need to do more than a bare minimum. What, yeah, what else I totally agree. What else could but you do? And I'm not going to hashtag The reason that
2: those uh, public landowner shirts are great is the fact that it's something people can identify with and, and they can be proud of it, right? And then if you challenge them and say, well, what would you do for public land? Like, if you really love public land, you better be doing something. So, like, the bare minimum for me, because not everybody can give cash. But this day and age, you're constantly connected. If you love a chunk of public land and you fish on it or hunt on it or just go lay out in the grass, if you see an issue that pops up, you better be calling your elected officials and let them know that those areas are important to you.
1: What would be an issue that popped up? You're seeing pipelines go through Well, I mean, it it
2: could be anything in any area, right? So a a really good one here is uh, the Crazy Mountains. They're beautiful, crazy beautiful, and they're about 20 minutes from where we're sitting right now east, and there's um, some historic trails that are public access, and a few years ago, some private landowners started blocking that access by posting them with no trespassing signs
1: okay but 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 so how is that possible though so a, a private owner of the land next to it
2: so these were easements, oh. so an easement can go through private land right and uh, oh
1: you're talking the the, the pathway the, trail, so the, the trails yeah. were they went through. I know what an easement is. So the yep. the the public trails were going through these properties. Yep. Okay. And the and the owners just said enough, and they yep put up signs. Yeah. Or blockades or whatever.
2: Uh yeah, just no trespassing signs. Yeah, but yeah. you can't do that. Right. Correct.
1: It's not even open for discussion though. Like, don't you just step over it and say peace out?
2: Well, unfortunately, um, that's not the way this story went. But and we don't need to. Jump way down into that one.
1: I want. I have no idea what you're talking about. So I would like to know uh, well, what there's you good would...
2: fishing in there. Yeah, uh, right. there's mountain goats. There's elk. Um, so what happened in the story? Well, uh, the story continues, and this is this is why. Like, if places and access are important to you, whenever you hear about these issues, you got to like call your duly elected officials and say, "Hey, I may not be recreating in the Crazy Mountains, but." I utilize a public easement mm-hmm. over here in North Dakota or wherever you're at, and it is essential to my sanity and my recreation and my health. So you better fight for this one just like the one in my backyard.
1: Yeah, but what happened in this one? Did someone get shot?
2: Uh nobody got shot in this one. That has happened in Montana. But uh this one, it just it's ongoing. They've done the research. The easements are historical easements, publicly maintained for the public, and it's unfortunately like in a legal battle right now.
1: But that's all, it's just a sign.
2: It is just a sign. But, but it's but legally... The local law enforcement decided to enforce the no trespassing, not the easement.
1: But how can the law enforcement do that if legally and federally it's, it's marked as public access?
2: Well, this gets into like some unknown territory for me, but I think it's as simple as the officer just made a mistake and, you know, showed up and said, Well, yeah, this looks like the map that you gave me. Sure looks private to me.
1: I just don't understand how that's not fixed within a week.
2: Well, then, you know, your politics come into play, and some of these folks uh, are well connected. And they um, started making phone calls way up the food chain, to the effect of having the actual U.S. Forest Service District Ranger removed from his job. Uh, He was shortly thereafter reinstated, but didn't seem like that was going to happen until like the severe public backlash came out, and then he was reinstated. And that's kind of where we're at right now. So that's like how long has all of that been going for? Um, so this most recently I think we're still in like that eighteen month time frame right now that
1: is so ridiculous, okay, and I'm sure there's more, and i I, I mean it can't be that ridiculous, can it? there's got to be more to it Well, politics say no more,
2: yeah, I mean it <laughs> it's tough, you know because you're always walking this line between you know private property rights and public access, and in my mind, it really should not come down to uh have-versus-the-have-nots, but it it does come down to that a lot. You know, I I certainly think if we can figure it out and come together and provide more access to the public places, it's going to take a lot of demand off of those landowners' time in regards to just fielding typical questions to hunt on private property or travel through private property to get to public property.
1: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to
2: wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check.
1: I always just assumed that the public land debate was always bigger corporations. I thought we thought it was extractions and drillings. I never in a million years would have thought it would be something as simple as putting up a no trespassing sign. Yep. So maybe I was making this whole thing out to be a lot bigger. In my head. And for me I'm going, I've got my own corporate battles and like mining companies to battle in, in my own backyard, literally yeah. in in British Columbia. I can't be focused on your guys' Corporate world, but it's you're saying it's more than that.
2: Well, yeah, and you know, there's you know, a great you know, like mining example, right? Is like look at the North Fork of the Flathead, that's something uh, you Canucks and us folks in the lower 48 have in common, right? That's mm-hmm. a shared river, and yeah, they were looking to put a mine in at the headwaters of the North Fork of the Flathead, and, and,
1: and because it's owned by the federal government, they can do it. But they still legally have to have consultant have have companies come in to make sure that. Yeah,
2: but this particular headwaters issue is on your guys' side of the line up uh, on the you know on the Kootenai up there.
1: So how do you guys handle that when it starts to get international?
2: Well, really, just similar to how you'd handle any issue, right? You get. A lot of awareness built up, and you start hashing it out, and eventually, um, British Columbia decided that it would be a bad idea to issue that mining permit up there. Good. Go, BC. Yeah, which was <laughs> yeah. And really good for us folks on the Montana side of the line. The fact of the matter is, is there's still a lot of land out there. It's an incredible opportunity. It's all very different, but... Yeah, I think a good way to think of protecting is in management, right? And it is messy and super nuanced because you got to think of like how different you can't manage a watershed the same regardless of whatever watershed it is, right? Like your chalk stream in Britain is a lot different than you know, the lower Mississippi, right? You can't just say, well, this is how they need to be managed. So I don't care what it looks like on the ground. So that's where a lot of this comes from is, you know, I'm going to have a wilderness area because this area meets that criteria of primitive use. And the best area way for this area to be managed is to limit the amount of folks by saying they can only access this area on foot or horseback. You could have the drainage right next door. That looks very, very similar. And they say, you know, we've done the environmental impacts uh, study here, and this area is actually much more suitable or can sustain a higher level of traffic. It would be good to, you know, have as a monument because in some monument areas you can still have, um, you know, ATV use on designated trails or mountain bikes on designated trails.
1: I want to talk about this campaign because it's really interesting to Mm -hmm. me just how viral it went. And it seemed to have happened really fast. Yeah. And I know that a lot of that, a lot of that was because of Steve and a lot of that was because of you guys on the internet, you know, really pushing public land and Cam, Cam pushing public land.
2: Hunters are really shitty at giving a shit long term. Like, they don't, like, if there's an immediate threat, if the gun barrel gets pointed at you, then hunters are, like, All right, we're going to fight.
1: But that's my point, Ryan, is that it it feels like the campaign, for me as an outsider or slash inside, whatever I am, as somebody looking in trying to learn more about it, it seems Mm wishy-washy. I see these people out there and they're like, I'm a public landowner. Look at how pretty I am with the background behind me or how handsome I am with the background behind me. But I'm going, yeah, but but what are you doing? So I'm doing what you said. I'm looking at them and being like, "But but what? Yes. And so... I feel like this whole campaign needs to have some guns pointed at people because I want yeah. to know
2: what are you doing. Oh, I I totally agree. And um, so yeah, so uh, this last resurgence of like public land owner pride really stems from this ordeal that we had with uh, Utah Senator or Congressman Jason Chaffetz, and he submitted a bill to dispose of two point two. I think 2.2 million acres of public land uh, across the US like identify chunks of ground that they could sell off.
1: What was in it for him being from Utah if it's across the country?
2: We could really get down into what possibly could have been
1: This is all congress point. And, and politics, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay.
2: But so just think of it I as watch a nationwide I cards.
1: I have an idea <laughs> of what's going on yeah. in there.
2: <laughs> uh could that could be scarily accurate for all I, I
1: think yeah. it is actually.
2: Yeah. Um so anyway, I got that information at first light. I was able to basically like whistleblow that like the first like larger platform other than a conservation group news newsletter release, press release started working along with a bunch of other people to get folks with even larger platforms to be like, "Hey, you got to pay attention." We've been talking about the possibility of your public land being sold off to the highest bidder never to be returned again and here's an actual bill introduced by this guy you better call and make sure that they know that you love those lands and you don't want them sold off and then yeah you saw um, you know, Joe Rogan talked about on the podcast, war is public landowner t-shirt. This
1: is when I saw it all really start. So that's yes. where it stemmed from. Yeah. The unsuspecting Montanan.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Don't but, let
1: the mustache fool you.
2: You know, I, I, I always say like, I, I came into this sort of like activism in just a very, very blue collar way. Right. It's like I lived in, the Frank Church, or I lived in the Bob Marshall guiding hunters. I lived on National Forest guiding hunters. You know, I was making a living and I had no idea any of these ideas to the contrary even existed, right? Because you're like, you're doing what you love, you're showing people you know, what you love and how they should respect the resource and love it too. And everybody's happy and it's amazing and it's beautiful and challenging and all that awesome stuff. And then eventually you got to come out of the woods. And when I first heard the concept that somebody wanted to sell all this stuff, it was like getting sucker punched. Mm. And I was like, well, obviously they've never stepped foot out here (laughs) because that's just a totally screwed up idea. And it, that's, I mean, essentially it was like, well, I, I need to at a minimum, let people know
1: it's happening,
2: it's happening and let people know that I love it. And, you know, I have a responsibility here because the only, only reason, uh, you know, I'm a happy, healthy individual is because I got all that time out there on public lands and really mm-hmm. got to explore them. And, you know, that's one thing that, uh, a lot of hunters and fisher folks have, ahead of the greater outdoor rec community is we don't need a trail. You go to places that aren't on the map because you're just you're looking for something just a little bit different and you see some amazing stuff out there and I feel yeah I certainly don't want everybody stepping off the trail. <laughs> no. But we we definitely have have a a duty, a sense of responsibility to let people know that yeah that these public lands aren't just a big block on the map there's a lot of special stuff in there. in there and and it's you know stuff that we need to treasure and keep and make sure it's around for everybody to enjoy
1: so did you beat the bill we did and that's my point i just feel like and again this is my own maybe this is just my like m- you know mary poppins way of life about me i want every, i see everything so idealistic but wouldn't it make more sense to find the most pressing issue at hand, gather all of us up together into this tribe and into this community, beat it, go on to the next. Because right now, it just feels like it's everywhere. And again, again, I I am... I know. And and, and it is everywhere. Like The problem is everywhere. But wouldn't the solution be better if it were to be concentrated on the biggest problem one at a time? Or do you think that the strategy of everybody breaking up and going at it differently is... Is is better because there are just so many issues.
2: I I think the best possible situation. I I do think that, and and you're exactly right, right? Like, there's some folks out there that are waving the flag that it's a little disingenuous. So they're like, they don't really understand the issue. They just know that uh, it seems to be a pretty hip thing to talk about, and they want to be a part of that, right? Well, every single issue out there has those folks. Any successful movement, you know, it gets started by zealots and people who know the issue and bleed the issue out of their eyeballs. But that isn't a successful movement, right? The successful movement comes when people who don't know anything about the issue are like, shit, I better really like public lands because it seems like that's where all the cool kids are at. But the reality is there's a way to win if we make it to where the thought of selling off public land is so politically ruinous
1: yeah yeah. it's
2: so unsexy that you know your landline will burn to the ground if you were to introduce or suggest you know selling off of this amazing clean air clean water providing you know mental health providing sanctuary that we have here in the u.s and that's this public land and you know it's it's pretty pretty darn cool that we get to utilize it the way we do at at basically zero cost to us
1: honestly i'm looking at what you guys have done as far as public pressure and the success you're having here with that and then i'm looking at the success that british columbians had with banning the grizzly bear hunt we like it or or hate it you know, agree with it or disagree with it. Public pressure changed that law, right? And I'm very curious with our fisheries. It feels like our fisheries. We just can't seem to. We have public pressure, but we can't seem to sway anything the way that public land and, and grizzly bears can.
2: That that is the thing, man. There's a huge component of this, and in the conservation world, you know, we we call it advocacy.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But the reality is, it's marketing and. Public relations.
1: Strategy and people and who you know and politics and money is so much deeper and dirtier yeah. than I thought. Then
2: you do need funding, right? Yeah. But, you know, a guy like me, I donate some cash when I can yeah. and, you know, I don't even count the licenses and tags and drawings and things that I enter because. That is selfish for me, right? Yep.
1: I don't mean that. Like I'm going hunting, but Ryan, I don't mean that kind of money. I don't mean money from you. I mean it's money when the public sways one way or another, especially when it's affecting politics. Money, money is pulled into that. It is. It
2: is for sure. But but on on the advocacy side of things, too, you know, I don't care how kind-hearted you are if you have the choice between donating on a big, big level Mm -hmm. to something that is outright just crazy, sexy, or Something that is not, chances are your cash is going to go to the sexy cool project, right? Yep. So that's another thing to look at. Like, yeah, you can be like, man. And I have, I'll totally tell you. Like, I've I've had those thoughts around the public land crowd, where I'm like, oh, I'm glad glad to see your. Uh, Bumping up your follower base by waving this public land flag when you didn't know anything about that issue right. at all, and chances are you still don't.
1: So that pebble mine campaign was before the public land campaign. Do you yeah. think that they would have had more success had they have had the same attention that the public land campaign has? Well, you
2: know, I think the uh, no pebble mine campaign had you know some good critical mass moments, but. You know, these conservation battles are long. Mm -hmm. They are really, really long, and that is nowhere near as simple as a senator or a congressman, rather, submitting a bill and then retracting that bill.
1: How much of the success do you think today, you know, say with the public land stuff, is is attributed to social media? Whereas, if I recall, the Pebble Mine thing was kind of early social days. Do you well, think we would have had more, more, or they would have had more the success? fact
2: is is like there's a it hasn't been announced yet, but there's another comment period for Pebble Mine coming up next month, I believe. That is not over at all. No, I didn't think like, it was. Pebble over. is still. Going And and that's kind of the the point is that you get this issue fatigue, right? And so you have something that's complicated. It's going through years of review. And really, when you see these spikes of attention, it's because there's a something critical happening. Okay, public comment period's coming up again. We need that same million plus comments that we had the last
1: review, oh, right? It is exhausting. With that issue, I don't know when it's I mean, I know it's new because I can look at when it's being spoken, you know, when the articles are being published. Mm -hmm. I can see it's new information or, or, you know, new meetings or whatever. But it's exhausting because I don't know how many did I miss before. It just feels like it's constantly looming.
2: Yeah, like one of the, the early, really good short films in the Fly Fishing Film Tour, like second season of Fly Fishing Film Tour, like way back when, Lake Iliamna. Did you know that there's a proposed mine here? Like that was the backbone of the whole story, mm-hmm. it was, and it was a great film. Yeah, I think and I remember that, was that one forever ago. So yeah, you know, social media is super important because, like, you know, it look like an app, app like Instagram, right? You can smack people in the face with a beautiful shot of the area. Um, your and you can put your personal connection to it in the subject. and Be like, hey. Get off your butts! Yeah, go to the link in my profile and and fill out this form letter and hound your congressman and tell him not to let this thing happen.
1: So, on that note, what's your figurative link in your bio? What are you focusing on right now?
2: Oh, so uh, you know, I really like mule deer, the noble mule deer. There are uh, a lot of oil and gas leases uh, up for, or many of them have already been purchased in this migration corridor. It's this. L- super long, cool mule deer migration, antelope migration too. It um, basically runs from Jackson Hole almost down to Rock Springs, Wyoming. And it is, you know, it's, it's kind of high desert, Wyoming desert, great sage grouse territory. It's called the red desert migration route. You know, that's critical for a ton of species. You know, right now we have almost an intact migration corridor and we're definitely not making any more of those
1: what makes a migration corridor
2: well um mule deer antelope elk they and you see this in idaho is a great place for like big migration corridors as well but basically you have uh animals that are moving from high country to low country as their wintering area and the high country is their summer area and then they have basically like intermittent areas where they do the breeding and, you know, either fawn or calve in the spring.
1: Is this all snowpack related? Um, snowpack, feed.
2: Food. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, that's
1: not, I mean, they can't just walk around an extraction area? Yeah, they can.
2: But, you know, you got to look at, uh, you know, all the studies that are um, on like road density, trail density, frequency of use, how long it takes to grow back old growth sagebrush, you know, a sage plant that's three feet tall is probably a hundred years old.
1: Oh, I would never have thought that.
2: Yeah. And that same chunk of sagebrush, right, it gets covered in snow and basically supports the snow. And that's a big...
1: For runoff and stuff, you mean? Yeah. I
2: mean, it holds snow, so it holds moisture on the ground. Um, But it also creates like awesome thermal cover for, you know, all your upland game birds, small mammals. And it's a great place to hide if you're a big mule deer. Uh, This red, red desert migration corridor is just has become very unique in the fact that it doesn't have giant. Barriers on it already, so it doesn't have you know the
1: cliff faces and stuff. You mean like or
2: a uh, four lane interstate uh, with uh, animal or, fences or those, on both sides right. of it, right? Of
1: All right, so that's what you're focusing on right now.
2: That's that's one big focus. I'm and, you know I'm always paying attention to you know chronic wasting diseases. You know we're starting to see it really pop up. In Montana, potential to pop up in Idaho. Um, I was going
1: to ask you guys about that, and and this is something I didn't anticipate. So I'll, I'll try to keep it in, in brevity. But I have been learning how to tan hides, or reading about mm-hmm. tanning hides. Yeah, and I've got all my materials ready, and I've got I've convinced someone to give me a you know skin, and I've got the head left on, and I've got the brain, obviously in the skull. And I was going to do this brain tanning, brain tanning, yeah. But then I got all freaked out in the book. It's you know, or I was reading about the CWD. And because I have Adelaide, I'm in a camp. I don't know if I can properly wash myself up after it. I might just end up using eggs I haven't decided yet. Is that something that the Pacific Northwest has?
2: You know it's the at the rate this stuff's growing and spreading it's gonna what? for it's going to for sure. what is it? Um, oh my gosh, so um have you ever heard of oh uh, well, like mad cow
1: mm-hmm. right
2: so um this is a A version of mad cow disease, Um,
1: only in the brain.
2: Well, no, that's—I mean—the highest concentrations are in the brain and um, the spinal fluid. But uh, really, it's—you know—they can—they're—they're coughing out these zygotes, and it can be picked up just from a grazing animal that ate that blade of grass that was coughed on.
1: Oh my goodness! This isn't the brainworm.
2: This is not brainworm. This is no. something
1: else. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Now, can this affect the meat?
2: Yes. So, so what they, if you're eating
1: like carpaccio or tataki or something, can you contract
2: it? It doesn't matter if you burn it <gasps> into a crisp; it's oh. still there. Yeah, you can't you can't cook it out.
1: So, how do you handle that? Living in an area where they have it, how do you know before you eat your meat?
2: Well, uh, you can uh, ha- you know send a sample in and get it tested and then if it you know tests positive you just uh really you're supposed to uh bury it how long does that take uh the testing process yeah. i think it's pretty darn quick now uh in states that are set up for it
1: cuz it doesn't sound like you're eating backstraps that night no wow so i
2: mean the there's some detractors on this issue one is that they've never established the jump from consuming meat to You know, there hasn't been an established case where CWD transferred from infected animal to human.
1: Oh, there hasn't been?
2: There has not been.
1: So is it just like a matter of time or does it simply not have the ability to do that?
2: Well, I mean, we don't know. We don't know.
1: When did this first start to come into play?
2: The Center for Disease Control is like, we highly recommend you do not eat the meat.
1: Wow. Okay, I'm going to have to sit down with someone else to really dive into that because I want oh, like two sure. hours on that.
2: Well, so, I mean, here's the deal, all right? Like, I'm in Idaho. Last week, I butchered a elk and a deer, and I love making stock. Mm-hmm. And man, you want to like take your food to the next level, make your own wild game stock, and it. and it's... Yeah, I mean, it is magical stuff.
1: And it makes your house, I, I made a batch the other night on the wood stove, 12 hours of simmering, my yeah. house is so fragrant.
2: Yeah, absolutely, yeah. it's amazing, and it just elevates what you're doing. And, you know, I'm making that stock, and I'm like, boy, how close am I going to let CWD get before I don't make bone stock anymore? Right. I'm like, okay, it hasn't been officially discovered in the state. Chances are it's already here because there's herds in Wyoming that have it that, you know, I know those animals cross over into Idaho. So that's four and a half hours away from here as the crow flies. Like,
1: mm, so it's on its way.
2: Right. So, do I wait until there's a confirmed case in the valley? Do I wait?
1: But how do you know if there's a confirmed case? Like, if if there are no cases that it's been passed on through human consumption, uh,
2: just a confirmed case. Like,
1: of oh it, boy, yeah. hey,
2: this deer was acting really weird.
1: Okay, so they they act strange too. It affects their brains and makes them act. Yeah, peculiar. late stage. Yeah. Is it? Is it bucks and does? Yes and it just makes them act
2: so later stage you know they 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 will eventually like quit eating quit drinking they they can't uh, focus they get all stumbly you know it's
1: they die eventually with it
2: well yeah if no other outside factors affect that deer then yeah eventually it will die purely from CWD.
1: Does it shut them down somewhere? Or does it shut down their brains? What does it shut down?
2: Well, I think it's, you know, like a malnutrition. You know, the body's like obviously freaking out. So there's probably some autoimmune issues there also. But higher rate of getting hit by cars. Predators. Predators of all sorts, including humans.
1: Well, I was just going to say, you know, you see the this deer and it's making it easy for you. Right. And you don't realize that you've just taken home a diseased animal. Right. And it's not like like you just said you can't cook it, cook it out. That's really scary.
2: Yeah. Do yep. you think
1: this has any relation to farming to farming animals? I've heard rumor of you know deer farms.
2: Yeah, and I think there is a there is a very very strong connection there.
1: Or do you think it's a climate change thing?
2: Yeah, I think the climate change argument is more like spot on for your like tick borne illnesses the brainworm i know mm, uh, in right. moose and uh whitetail deer and um, some mule deer too for things like that i think you could you could point more towards climate change for cwd um, the fingers point are really strong to the captive cervid
1: do industry do know why and i just learned that yesterday that that's what they call it yeah captive cervid he said
2: Yep. Captive cervid industry. Yeah. Yeah,
1: So what is, do we have it in Australia and New Zealand then? Because there are farms everywhere there.
2: Yeah. There's a lot of farms down there and I'm not sure if you do, but you know, mad cow kind of came out of the same thing, right? It's, you had uh, calcium and protein in a dead animal that isn't suitable to sell the market, so they'd take that animal and grind it up and put it back in the cattle feed.
1: So is that why it would come from farms? Because they're just looking at it from, we don't want to waste it, so we're going to reuse that for feed? Or is it happening in in a situation like with, with sea lights, that you've got a concentration of animals and it just draws in these parasites?
2: Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, the concentration of animals. Yeah. Um, obviously, this The CWD doesn't really fall under my purview of expertise, but it is definitely something I'm looking at and and always keeping tabs on. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, it it definitely is a selfish issue, right? I'm like counting down the days to where I can't make bone stock anymore.
1: But if they can't, if there haven't been any confirmed cases of somebody getting sick or dying from it, how do they know that we shouldn't even eat it?
2: Because well, they don't know.
1: They just don't. No one wants to sign up to to try it out.
2: They're just saying, "Okay, look at Mad Cow disease. Mm-hmm. Look at similar." Uh, there's a good acronym for what this thing's actually called, but look at the other diseases in this family. High likelihood that yes, eventually, this is going to be very bad for a person.
1: Is there anything that you would like to add or to ask me?
2: Well, not not if we have to wrap it up. I mean, i got a lot of things to ask you that I didn't get to ask you. So we're just going to have to do another one of these things at some point.
1: We'll do another but, one. We'll get you around the campfire.
2: Yeah, I'll show you uh, the appropriate amount of lead to put on your line to really bounce some flies on the bottom.
1: Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I will show you alternate options. And how that
2: bobber really works.
1: <laughs> I don't mind the bobber. Like, I'm not offended by it. It doesn't, I don't understand the offense behind the bobber.
2: Oh, I, I just think it's funny.
1: Yeah, I think people take themselves a little seriously sometimes. I personally oh, yeah. just don't want to watch a bobber all day. I would rather have my line just unexpectedly ripped from my hands. I just think it's more fun that way.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we do all sorts of things to make these pursuits harder to prolong the experience right because we love doing it
1: we don't want it to stop
2: yeah exactly and um you know that's yeah it's a good tie-in to um (laughs) you know it's not public land versus private land it's really just working together and making sure everything works the best for everybody which is a pie-in-the-sky idea but it is possible right uh we just need to do a hell of a lot better job looking at it as a us versus them issue it's uh, we all got to work together issue because we're keep making more people and things are just going to get more complicated so we got to get on top of this stuff right now
1: i just felt that little tinge of guilt that i've just made another person
0: (laughs) did you see it i literally like
1: broke eye contact with you because i was like fuck yes i know but yeah i mean I'm just going to have to educate her so she knows what she's getting herself into.
2: Exactly. Mm-hmm. And make a little appreciator, right?
1: So, well, I think I already have a little appreciator. Good. She just absolutely loves it out there. But yeah, that's going to be my, my role. It's an important one. Years. Yeah, for
2: sure. I mean, it, it's really hard. And that's something that I struggle with every day is you, obviously you're, I'm not going to just take everybody into my super special places. But I have got to figure out a way for everybody to feel the way I do about these places if we're not going to watch them get turned into a parking lot or something, you know.
1: And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening.